All right, Sedaris, good morning. How are we? So glad to be together worshiping. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris. We're entering into our time of teaching. Uh, so glad that you've tuned in wherever you're tuning in from. Um, this is not how we would prefer to do church, but we're so thankful for the technology that God is allowing us to connect even virtually now. So if you're new with us, welcome. We'd love for you to get connected. Fill out one of those connect cards. Um, Virtually, you'll see all that in the details of this video. There's lots of links, and you can click your way around to get connected. Uh, We'd love for you to get connected. Uh, It's so good to come together and sing. But I got got to be honest, I'm tired. I'm tired. It's been seven weeks of this now, trying to figure out how to do life and how to do church differently. And I'm just, I'm just tired. So if you're tired, I just pray that the teaching of the word um, would be refreshing to your soul. Uh, the topic of today's sermon has been refreshing to my soul. I think the timing was perfect for me. I hope it's perfect for you as we study more about the ascension of Jesus. So would you pray with me as we come to the word of God? Father, we need you now. We are tired. We need your help. We need your wisdom. We need your endurance and perseverance that we might continue on. So I pray now as as, as we come and study your word, study the word of life that you've given us to refresh us, God, would you just allow that to stir in our soul and give us life, give us refreshment, give us energy to continue to move and be your people in the world, God. I pray for those of, uh, of my friends who are listening who, who might not know you or might not be connecting with you right now, God. May this be a time of connection for them where they come and hear of your goodness and hear of who you are, God, that may it just be refreshing and stir their affections for you. So as we come to our teaching, we pray that you send your spirit to illuminate the word of God, that we might understand it and and what it's trying to tell us this morning so that we might go and be more fully human, just as you've created us, for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as I, as I said, uh, we're two weeks now into a teaching on the ascension. Now, why talk about the ascension? Um, and, and as we talked about last week, uh, we said s- sometimes we tell stories, but we don't finish the end. In fact, my five-year-old son, Grayson, he, he's in the habit now of not actually finishing movies. He'll get to the end of the movie, the climax, where the good guy and the bad guy have their final fight scene or whatever it happens to be, and he kind of knows now, like, Uh, I know that's sort of the end, that's sort of the climactic moment, and so as soon as that fight is over and the good guy wins, he always just walks away. And I'm always like, Grayson, the movie's not over, you gotta see uh, what comes next. And he says, all the excitement's over. And I feel like sometimes that's how we are with Easter Sunday. We've talked on Good Friday about the death of Jesus, that he absorbed the sin of the world on himself, and he paid the penalty and the price, and he defeated and crushed Satan and the powers of evil on the cross, we celebrate that. And then Sunday we celebrate that God didn't leave him in the grave, but brought him back to life. And it proves that the victory is won. And then we sort of celebrate that and we end there. But that's not where the Bible ends. The Bible continues to tell the story of Jesus, how he spent the next 40 days teaching and eating and being with the disciples and explaining everything that he accomplished on the cross and by the resurrection. But then also telling him that I can't stay with you. I have to go and be back with the Father so that I can send you the Spirit. And the Spirit will give you everything you need that you might go and be my people in the world. And so that's why uh, what you'll see in this shift, you have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that recount Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And then you have the book of Acts, which talks about the beginning of the Jesus movement or the beginning of the church. And, and the name for 
for the disciples changes from disciples to apostles. Apostles is the Greek word meaning sent ones because Jesus has sent his spirit to them and then he sends them out into the world to take the good news of all that God's done through Jesus uh, to the ends of the earth. And so um, what we see then is that the story doesn't just end with the resurrection, but it, it continues and Jesus historically in space-time history in his physical body was lifted up and taken into the heavenly realm is what the Bible teaches. And we talked about this last week. I really recommend going and listening uh, to that sermon because it'll help you explain uh, the first and most important element of the good news of the ascension, which is that God's love for us has been fully restored when we see that the Son has come back to the Father and their love has been fully restored. And then God, through Jesus and through the Spirit, pours out his love to us, those who have the Spirit, because of faith in Jesus. So, um, so that's the first element of the ascension. And today we'll look at the second element of the ascension. What is so important about the end of the story of Jesus that he ascended and sits now with God the Father at his right hand on the throne in the heavenly realm? And again, heavenly realm, we talked about this last week, is not just someplace in outer space. It's, it's a different dimension. And one day heaven will fully come and heaven and earth will be reunited just as the Father and the Son are reunited. So, so what else is important about the ascension? Now, to explain why we should be asking that question and why we should be including the ascension when we share the good news of Jesus and why maybe, maybe you've never heard why the ascension is important. Let's just look at what the apostles themselves said about the ascension. So I've got a couple texts I just want to read to you. The first one is actually in Acts chapter 2. So that's the very beginning of the book that explains what happened after Jesus' ascension. And in the very first sermon ever preached, this was on the day that the Spirit of God was sent down, the day of Pentecost, sent and it filled the disciples and they began to speak in languages that they did not know because the Spirit filled them. Peter, the sort of leader of all the disciples, leader of the apostles, stands up and explains to all the people who are wondering what's going on. Why are these people acting like this? Um, Peter stands up and he begins to explain. This is what was predicted long ago. And he goes back to the Old Testament and explains to all these Jewish people what's happening. God promised that this would happen, that he would send his spirit. And people would prophesy and speak in tongues. And, and, and everyone would be filled with the spirit. And, and, and he gets to the end of his explanation about all that Jesus has done and who Jesus is. And this is, this is how he ends it. He says, this Jesus God raised up. And that we are all witnesses, speaking of the disciples, because they'd seen and touched and, and, and ate with Jesus after his death and resurrection. And then he goes on, he says, being therefore exalted, there he's talking about the ascension, at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that's Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's poured out his spirit and the people are seeing its effects. For King David did not ascend into heaven. King David was the most revered of all the kings. And King David actually prophesied that there was coming another king greater than he who would sit on his throne. And so, king, so uh, Peter is, is referencing this, a prophecy of King David. He says, King David even didn't ascend into the heavens, but King David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So, so now Peter is applying what, what King David in the Psalms predicted would happen to the person of Jesus. 
that this is who King David was talking about. That King David said that the next king, the greater king, the Messiah, would actually sit in the heavenly throne of God. And, and, and Peter's saying, that's Jesus. So he finishes. So let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, which means Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified. So you can see in the very first sermon ever preached, the beginning of the Jesus movement, the ascension is essential to the good news. You can't have the good news without the ascension. It is gospel proper. So all you have to do is move just a a few chapters on and and you see the 11 disciples are out proclaiming the good news of Jesus and they're arrested and they're thrown into jail and then all of them are brought before the court and um, uh, the council, the sort of religious elites in Jerusalem are asking them, what are you doing? We told you not to teach in the name of Jesus. And this is what Peter and the apostles answered. They said this, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus up, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So here's this again. When they're talking about Jesus and what he's done, they always include the ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father. This is what makes this victorious Christ, this victorious Messiah and Savior of God's people, this is what makes him leader of his people, that he's sitting now in the heavenly realm, leading his people through, through the sending of the Holy Spirit. So it's essential. The gospel, every time you see it in the New Testament, they always talk about the ascension. So we should talk about the ascension. Now, if you continue on um, in the book of Acts, you come to the first martyr. That's Stephen. He was a deacon in the church. And Stephen is brought before the people, and they actually accuse him of blasphemy, and they're going to stone him to death. And in Acts 7, it says this, But he, that's Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, this is Stephen said this, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, again, essential to the hope and the motivation that sent God's people out with the good news is, is the ascension. Now, Stephen ends up being stoned to death. And again and again and again, you read this. Not just in the first few weeks and months of the church, but if you begin to read the epistles, uh, which are the letters written from the apostles to churches all around the Roman Empire, you see that when they talk about the gospel, the good news, they always include the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. Those are three critical pieces of the gospel. So I'll just read you... um, uh, one important text. This is Ephesians 1. So this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. To the church in Ephesus. And you can look that up on a map and see what that is. Um, he wrote this letter, and he's explaining to them the glorious mysteries of the gospel. So he says this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So he's saying the the wisdom of revelation and knowledge in God looks like this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which you are called, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, 
okay? So this is the knowledge, the mystery that God has revealed. This is the most beautiful thing. This is the good news of the gospel. This is what he's done in Christ when he, look at it, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, that's the ascension, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet, that's under Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Now look at that. It says, not only in this age, but in the one to come. So apparently Jesus is currently from the heavenly throne room, reigning and has authority and control now. And there's another age coming when he'll continue to have control. And what Paul's talking about is the promise that Jesus made that I'm going to come back to earth and I'm going to set up a kingdom here. Just like I have authority and power in heaven and rule from heaven now, there's an age that's coming when I'm going to come to earth and rule from here, when I unite heaven and earth together. So in both of those ages, now and in the age to come, Jesus has ultimate authority and power. That's what Paul is teaching. And it's all tied to the ascension. The ascension is essential to the gospel message. Now, Why is that important? Why is it important to understand that the gospel is essential? Or sorry, the ascension is essential to the gospel. Um, Last week we talked about how the ascension proves that God's love is complete because the Father and the Son have been fully restored in loving relationship. Today we'll talk about how the gospel proclaims that Jesus has all authority and power and is sovereign The ascension teaches that. The next week, Ryan will talk about how the ascension provides the missing ingredient for God to fulfill his mission in the whole world. And then the final week, we'll talk about um, how the ascension um, presents Christ to all people at all times in all places. All four of those uh, parts of the ascension are really important to understand. So I I hope you can listen to all four of them. But today we're looking at how the ascension proclaims that Christ has all authority, that he has all control in the here and the now. So, so look at um, that passage again. Let's put that up on the screen one more time. Um, at the very end, starting in verse 20, you'll see four verbs. It says that he worked in Christ these things when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at the right hand and he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things. So what's the significance that Jesus was raised from the dead? Well, this shows that God has all power over everything. He has power even over death. So that's the first. So so he raised him, showing God has all the power. Now what's the significance that he says he seated him at his right hand? Well, this shows that Jesus now as the right hand of God, meaning as the extension of God. We talked about this last week. Like in the Game of Thrones, the hand of the king has the same power and authority as the king. So it says now Jesus is the king. He's the hand of the king. He sits at the right hand of the father. So now Jesus has all that same power that God has, even the power over life and death, okay? So what's the significance then of that it says he's put him over all things? Well, and that he's put... Um, all authorities and powers under his feet. What's, what's the significance of that? Um, basically, uh, 
what Paul is saying is that this means that there is no other power in the world that is not subject to Jesus. So we're talking all the angels are subject to Jesus, all the fallen angels, the Bible calls those demons, including the leader of that group of fallen angels, which is often referred to as Satan or the devil. They're all underneath the feet of Jesus. Jesus has power and authority over them and any national power, any political power, any economic power. Jesus has authority over all of them. Okay, that's the significance. Now, what's the significance that says God gave him to us as head over all things? Well, it means that Jesus controls all creation. All creation is connected to Jesus, and he controls it. Okay? Including us. We are connected to Jesus. He's the head of the body. So that's fantastic to know. We're connected to Jesus, but Jesus is the control center And he has control over all things. So nothing is outside of his realm or dominion. And um, you can think of Jesus as like the brain. And then the Holy Spirit is like the spinal cord. And we're all connected to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. We are the body. He is the head. Okay? And so he controls all things. Not just his church, but all of creation as well. So putting all of this together, what, what can we know then from the ascension... What can we know from the ascension that we otherwise wouldn't know? If Jesus just rose from the dead and the story ended there, we knew nothing of the ascension, what does the ascension show us as as Jesus sits at the right hand of God? Well, the ascension shows us that Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control, which is to say Jesus is sovereign over all things and that Jesus has authority over all things. So in other words, you could say Jesus governs all things. And by the word of his mouth, he can command anything. He can command anything. So wind, lightning, snow, frogs, gnats, fleas, locusts, quail, fish, sparrows, grass, plants, famine, sun, moon, prison doors, blindness, deafness, paralysis, fever, travel plans, kings and kingdoms, demons and devils, angels, And even the seas bow down to Jesus. He's in control of it all. And when you think about this, um, one of the ways to think is, is when Jesus decides something, it will happen. When Jesus decides for something to happen, it will happen. We know this by the ascension. And so you wonder, I say that, and I say the ascension is essential to the gospel, to the good news. And in times like this, right, in times like this, in hard times, in uncertain times, in painful times, I think it's fair to wonder, this is good news? This is good news? Is it, is it good news to know that Jesus is in control? Does that make Jesus more attractive or less attractive? It's a fair question. Because if he's in control, wouldn't that mean that he's in control, that he's sovereign, that by the word of his command, he could put an end to the coronavirus? But yet he doesn't. So is that good news? Is that good news? 
I'm going to say yes. And I'm going to explain why. It is good news. It is good news. Because, think of the alternative. If Jesus is not in control, if God is not in control, then who is in control? I think you have three options, and all three of them are terrifying to me. The options are that Satan has the most control, or that chance has the most control, that we have no more control than a roll of the dice, than medical statistics to predict our future, or that world powers, politicians, medical powers, they have the most control. And you have to ask, is that good news? So that Jesus is in control, at least for me, is good news. Because this means that an evil, selfish, uh, fallen angel is not in control. And it means that the shifting sands of fate and chance, they're not my comfort right now. And it also means that, an, that often ill-equipped and and often ignorant, and uh, sometimes evil human beings are not ultimately in control. So for me, that's good news. That's good news, that we have a real rock, that we have a real rock, that the creator of life is really in control, that the conqueror of death is the one that's actually in control. For me, that's good News, and we know it by the ascension. Now, I want to make a key distinction here. Uh, because when we're trying to ask, is it actually good news that, that, that Jesus is in control? Um, we have to filter through an important distinction. Um, some things, like statistics or trends or circumstances, uh, they do give us comfort. Um, they make us feel fine. Uh, but we have to make the distinction between feeling fine and being fine. Uh, so, the, so the best way to, to make this clear is um, to think about something that I know lots of us have had experience with. Uh, protect, perhaps you or a loved one has been diagnosed with cancer. Lots of times when you get the diagnosis of cancer, you go into the doctor's office and you go in feeling fine. But, but then you get diagnosed and you realize even though you were feeling fine, you weren't actually fine. The, sa- the same phenomenon is happening with the coronavirus. Uh, many people are feeling fine, but they're not actually fine. They actually have the virus. And so the distinction we need to make is what feeling fine versus being fine actually is. What is the difference? Well, um, When we know Jesus, and we know that he is in control, um, we also know that we might feel fine, um, but not be fine, okay? And here's what gives me comfort. Here's what gives me comfort. That even if I'm feeling fine and I'm not fine, because Jesus is in control, it will be okay. Even if I'm not feeling fine, but actually am fine, 
Jesus is in control, and I'll be okay. And, he, and here's why that works. God in Christ alone knows and decides if I'm fine, meaning I'll live on, or if I'm not fine, I will die today. And he is the one that knows and decides that. Satan can't decide that. Biology can't decide that. Human powers and authorities can't decide that because they sit underneath the feet of Jesus. Only Jesus knows and decides if I'm fine. Now, sometimes I might be fine, but sometimes I might, might not be fine. And actually, one of my favorite passages, I want to read this to you, is James 4, 13 through 16. James 4 says this. James was the brother of Jesus, and he was a part of the church in Jerusalem. He wrote this letter to encourage God's people. He said, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James is saying the same thing. He's saying, it's not wrong to make plans, but only God decides if you're fine or not fine, if you live or you die. Only God decides that. So what you boast in is not how you're feeling. What you boast in is in your knowing that Jesus Christ has died for you, that he has made possible even life after death, so that whether you are fine now or you are not fine now, you are ultimately fine. You're good with God because you know that either in life or in death, you will be with Jesus. You will either be with him now in the spirit or you'll be with him in heaven in person. So that is part of the hope and the good news of the ascension. That everything is underneath Jesus' control and he decides whether you're fine or you're not fine. But in either case, in this life, you are fine in eternal timeline because you know Jesus. Okay? So, it is good news. <laughs> It is good news, but, but that doesn't mean that it's easy to digest. If he's all-powerful, in control of all things, then why doesn't he eradicate the world of things like COVID-19? Why doesn't he do it right now? So that question is much harder to answer. So, so when I say that it's good news that Jesus has ascended and he is sovereign in control and governs all, I'm not saying that's easy to understand. I'm not saying that's easy to digest. And this comes back to, to what we could call the inscrutability of God. What, what does that mean? The inscrutability of God means this. God is doing a billion things, probably more than a billion things, uh, all at once. He's doing so much, and our creaturehood limits us from understanding everything that God's doing. We can't possibly understand it. Um, He's always doing more than we think he's doing. Even when we think we know what he's doing, he's always doing so much more. It's the inscrutability of God, meaning we just can't know everything he's doing. But inscrutability doesn't mean that we can, cannot know anything at all. We can know things. So here's what we do know. We do know that when sin entered the world, when sin entered the world, things broke. And so we can say that sin, not God, 
is the origin of all global devastation and misery. You look up Romans 5, 12, teaches us that. So we can know that, that sin is the origin of all pain and misery. We can also know, though, that God could put an end to pain and misery and all the results and manifestations of sin. He could put an end to it right now because he is sovereign, but he chooses not to. He chooses not to. So these, these are challenging truths, but we know these things. We know both of those things are true. Um, and maybe this illustration will help you. Uh, just the other day, I was in the park with my son, Owen, my one-year-old son, Owen, actually while my other son, Grayson, was getting stitches because he busted open his chin. So we were just hanging out in the park, and, and all of a sudden, uh, from across the way, comes a, a very fast dog running at us. And he came up and just terrorized Owen, and Owen freaked out and cried, and it was a scary moment for Owen. He was fine. The dog didn't do anything to him. And it was clear okay, that the owner of the dog was not as fast as the dog. Not only was the dog not on a leash, but the owner clearly could not keep up with the dog, okay? So it caused some misery for Owen. Um, This is not the way God's sovereignty and sin work together. Sin is not off the leash. Death is not off the leash. Satan is not off the leash, Disease is not off the leash. God is not incapable of chasing down sin, death, the devil, or disease. God is very much in control. All of those things that create misery, that create hardship, that create pain and suffering, and even death, those things are very much on the leash, and God has the leash in his hand. They cannot run away from him. They can only do what God allows them to do. But it is still a leash, meaning they still get to work as personal agents to the extent that God allows them to work. So God is not responsible for the effects of of evil and sin, but he's in control of them. Now, this leash of God is is very complex. Um, He can use it in a very powerful way, just as Jesus calms the storm. He could... could literally yank on the chain and stop a storm. Or God can use the leash more like the butterfly effect. You know the butterfly effect where in one part of the world, a butterfly flaps its wings and it creates a tsunami on the other side of the world. God can use both. So this leash is not so simple. And again, it's inscrutable. We don't understand actually how it works or what God's doing, but we know he's in control. Sin and death, the devil and disease, they're not off the leash. God very much is in control of them. So we know these things. Uh, you, might, you might say it like this. Even though Jesus is in control, he allows sin and the agents of sin and evil and death to freely choose destruction. And he even allows non-personal agents, such as biological um, contingencies, coronavirus. He allows non-personal agents to play themselves out in his world to create bitterness. He allows it, even while he's in control. But why? 
Why, if he's in control, would he allow it? Enter inscrutability. But again, it's not a throw up your hands and say, we know nothing about it. I have no idea why God would allow it. We actually do know something about why he allows it. And we don't have to look any further than the most famous example, the most important example, and that is the example of the cross. God desired, decided, and decreed that his son would hang upon a Roman cross to die for your sin and for my sin. God decided it, and no one could stop it from happening because God decided it. Yet, at the same time, it was the jealousy, the selfishness of human agents that actually arrested, tried, and put the nails in the hands and feet of Jesus. So both are true at the same time, but ultimately it was God's decision, and no one could stop it, even though the sinfulness of human hearts is the one that carried it out. So he could have stopped it, but he didn't stop it because he willed it. So you, so you might describe this moment in human history as what? The greatest act of bitterness. The greatest moment of bitterness. The most bitter thing that's ever happened when God the Father sacrificed God the Son for us. Yet only God could see why that had to be the way. Jesus tried to explain it to his disciples, and they just couldn't understand. But here we have an example of a formative principle. It goes like this. God sovereignly decides and allows bitter means, which are pregnant in a sinful world, to bring to life his perfect and inscrutable plan for his glory and for our good. Let me say it again. God sovereignly decides and allows the bitter means pregnant in a sinful world to bring to life his perfect, inscrutable plan for his glory and for our good. That's the principle we do know about. So we don't understand every why, but we understand that God has and will use bitter means to bring about his better world. He did it with Jesus, and he'll do it again and again. Now, let me reiterate. I'm not saying that's easy to digest. I know that's hard to hear. I'm saying it because it's true. And you'll only be able to digest it if you have the probiotic of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that you'll be able to digest that truth. But Jesus sent us the Spirit. And he sent it to us when he ascended. So if you're having trouble grasping and trusting and believing that fact that God will and does use bitter means to bring about his perfect ends, then ask for the Spirit. Ask the Spirit of God to give you the probiotic to digest that difficult truth. This is the harsh reality, friends. Christians and non-Christians alike will die. They will be diagnosed with cancer, Christian and non-Christian. They will be swept away by tsunamis, Christian and non-Christian. They will be killed in terrorist attacks, Christian and non-Christian. And they'll get the coronavirus, Christian and non-Christian. But as a Christian, 
you can rightly, because of the ascension, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And in all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Proverbs 3. Because, because he, and this, I get this from Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So whether in life or in death, we can trust that any cup, no matter how bitter it is, which God decides to give us, we can trust that it will not be in vain, that God is using it for our enduring joy, even when we cannot see how or why in the world it would be that way. This is the baffling, this is the perplexing, but this is the beautiful and good news of the reality that Jesus is sovereign over all things, and we know it because of the ascension. Now, I want to say this, if you're struggling with this. One of the great truths about the ascension is that he who is in control, who governs all, this Jesus, he does not lack the experiential knowledge of what this feels like to us. To have to trust in a God not knowing how it all works together. Jesus experienced that. That's part of the beauty here of the ascension. That Jesus is still in his human body. And he experienced while on earth the agony of not knowing exactly what the Father was doing. We have that picture. On the night he was betrayed, he sat in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he cried out to the Father, is there any other way? Why does it have to be this way? And so Jesus himself is our great high priest. He understands how hard this is to trust in the sovereignty of God in the midst of bitterness, in the midst of suffering, on the precipice of pain. He gets that. And he's the one that you trust. He's the one that intercedes on your behalf. And he gets it. So, with that said, um, I want to give you six ways that this lofty truth might actually change your life now. Okay? Six ways. Here's number one. I want you to take five deep breaths with me. Ready? (sighs) Sorry. There's one. There's two. There's three. There's four. There's five. Do you know what you just experienced? Five gifts from your king, King Jesus. Every single breath is a gift from him. He decided to give you those five breaths. And so this should change your life now. Every breath you take, every moment you experience is a gift from your king. He has decided to give it to you. That's why as Christians, we should be the most thankful people in the world because we understand that Jesus is the one who decided to give us that gift. Number two, when Jesus is 
in the storm on the boat with his disciples. This was before his death and resurrection and ascension. Um, there's a big storm and they're out on a boat and, and the disciples think they're going to die. And Jesus is sleeping through the whole storm. And they finally wake him up and they say, what are you doing? Help us. And Jesus calms the storm with a word. Jesus is going to allow storms. He allowed it for his disciples. That wasn't the last storm that they experienced. And he's allowing the storms so that you might learn where to turn when that moment comes. And the question is, will you turn to Jesus? And so he's going to allow more and more storms into your life and use those opportunities as a way to practice turning to Jesus. So it's, it's, it's the principle of the storm. Turn to Jesus in the storm. You can practice that even now. That is at least part of the reason God is allowing this virus to continue, that you might learn to turn to him in the midst of the storm. Principle number three. Um, One of the things he teaches us in these storms is uh, to have a greater perspective, an eternal perspective. And um, there's a, there's, a, there's a man uh, who was a missionary in the 1800s, early 1800s, to India, and at the time, uh, the Persian Empire. Um, and he, his name was Henry Martin, and uh, he actually ended up dying of the plague at age 31. And this was an incredible man. And he's actually credited with, with the saying, uh, some of you may have heard it or not, with the saying that goes like this, I am immortal until Christ's work for me, is through. Here's a man who died of the plague at the age of 31, but was convinced that he would not die until his work was done. So, we should have the same thought. Because Jesus is in control, because he decides, we can be assured that we are immortal until Christ's work is done. So that can make us bold and brave in the face of death and evil and opponents because no one can thwart the plans of Jesus. Not you, not me, not anyone. We are immortal until Christ's work is done in us. Now, this doesn't mean that we're reckless or foolish. It just means that we're fearless because we know that no one supersedes Jesus. Principle number four. We need to discover um, through this the secret of being sorrowful yet rejoicing. That's 2 Corinthians 6.10. Christians are told to be rejoicing even in the midst of sorrow. So these are bitter times. But because we know of the sovereignty that allows the virus to continue, because we know that sovereignty is the same sovereignty that meets us in the moment and sustains us and satisfies our soul in the midst of the bitterness, we can still rejoice. God promises that he'll give us everything we need for every situation. And so God will give us what we need in this situation. So that leads in us a sorrowful rejoicing. So it doesn't mean that we pretend that the bitterness isn't bitter, we, we recognize and we admit and we lament the bitterness of this moment, the bitterness of death, the, the bitterness, but yet we rejoice knowing that God sustains us even in the bitterness. Okay, principle number five. Learn to trust and obey Jesus without needing the answer to your whys, okay? 
without needing the answers to your whys. Now, this does not mean that you don't ask why. It doesn't mean that you don't want the why. It doesn't even mean that you don't beg God to give you the why. Lord knows I've begged him to give me the whys and the bitterness that I've experienced in life. It just means that you don't make the why or your answer to the why conditional upon your going, okay? You don't make it conditional. You don't say to God, I'll go or I'll do or I'll obey if you tell me why. See, it's conditional. Instead, you ask your whys on the way. You ask your whys on the way. So as you're going, as you're following, as you're obeying Jesus, it's perfectly okay to ask your whys. He may or he may not give you answers, but you ask your whys on the way. And lastly, principle number six. If Jesus is high and lifted up in the heavenly realms, if he's sitting on the throne in the heavenly realms, then we need to learn how to lift him high and let him sit on the throne of our hearts and minds. We need to learn how to lift Jesus as high in our own life as he is in the heavenly realm. If the ascension is true, how do we lift up Jesus? He is not just one of many votes on some board of directors for your life. He's not just one of many votes along with Mr. Culture and Mr. Boyfriend and Mrs. Girlfriend and Mr. Promotion and Mrs. Political Correctness and Captain Ego. It's not like a whole board of directors and Jesus gets one vote. He has the authoritative uh, veto power over all. We bow before him as a king. He is a king. He is not just there for good advice that we may take into consideration. How do we lift him high in our hearts and our minds? Here's why this is so hard. Because when, G- when God chose to put on flesh and Jesus dwelled among us and he humbled himself so that he could come near, it's almost like he came and took a knee so that we, so that he could hear our pleas, that he could, that he could be near to us and understand what we're going through. When he took that knee, you know what we did? We took that as an opportunity to push him over to knock him down. That's what we did. That's what we did. And because he is a human being like us, the familiarity or the commonness of Jesus becomes our contempt for him. That's why it's so hard. Because he, he has a body like ours. He walked among us. He eats and he drinks just like us. And our familiarity breeds contempt in us. So it makes it hard for us to lift him up as king. It makes it easy for us to push him down. But here's the truth of the ascension. It is the last piece of historical warning. It is the last proclamation that God has made to us. This is my son. He has all my power and all my might and all my authority. I'm telling you this, that in the heavenly realm, he's sitting at my right hand. He took a knee for you and he died for you, but he will not do that again. Now he pours out his spirit that you might experience my love, but don't make the same mistake you made the first time he came because he's the king and he's coming again and you need to be ready for that. And it's so hard because he's just like you. He's taken upon himself humanity. And so you're going to look at him 
and you're not going to want to lift him up high and revere him above all others in your heart and in your mind. But I beg you, because of the ascension, because of the picture that God has painted about who Jesus actually is and what he's actually done and what he's trying to do, we beg you, lift him high in your heart and your mind and bow before him as your king. This is how the ascension will change your life now. If you're able to see Jesus as he actually is and let him act in that place as your king and your authority, as the sovereign who governs the world and governs you. If you let him be that, he'll bring you everything that your heart desires. He'll bring you joy everlasting and eternal, even when you don't understand how it all fits together. Would you pray with me? Um, Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this opportunity to come together and worship you, God, and to be your church, even though we're scattered. We know that this is part of why you ascended, that you might connect us through your Holy Spirit, that you can be now in all places at once, and you can be now in our living rooms. And so we're so thankful for that. We're so glad that we get to be with you, near you, uh, one with you in this time, God. We're so thankful. We're so thankful for the many blessings that you've bestowed upon us. And Jesus, we now... Uh, just proclaim, proclaim along with scripture, along with the apostles, that you are now sitting at the right hand of God, that he has given you all authority, that he has put under your feet all powers and principalities, and all evil and sin and death are all under your feet, God, and and we just can celebrate knowing uh, that we know you, the one who is in control of all things, and we ask now that you would come and be with us and comfort us uh, with your presence as we sing these songs of praise to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.